a series on the Old Testament book of Ecclesiastes. And as we've been saying for weeks now, the book of Ecclesiastes is part of the wisdom literature in the Old Testament. And the purpose of the wisdom literature is to instill within us, can you guess? Wisdom. Good. It's the purpose is to instill with us, within us wisdom to help us uh, successfully navigate through life. What God is wanting to do through his word is he's wanting us to recognize that as creator, he knows how the world is meant to operate. He made it. And he also is the redeemer. So he knows what is true about the fact that the world is fallen. It's broken. It's not the way it's supposed to be. And he's wanting to communicate to us wisdom. You, you could almost uh, think of it in this way, that as we look to Ecclesiastes and we're guided by this person that we are referring to as the preacher, because that's how he's introduced to us in the very beginning of the book, the preacher is mentoring us. The preacher is a guide, as we've been saying. He's uh, taking us on an exploration of life. And, and what the preacher in particular is trying to do is something that each and every one of us tries to do, and that is to make sense of life. Specifically, the preacher is trying to find that thing, the key that might unlock all of the mysteries of life, that would give the preacher the vantage point of life to be able to see everything the way it is, to know everything. He's on this search, but as we've been seeing time and time again, he ends up frustrated because every time he moves to the next thing and says, well, maybe this is the thing, maybe this is the key, he ends up bringing us into his conclusion, which is, wasn't that, wasn't that. And that's why we get the repeated refrain throughout the book, life is vapor. It's, what he's saying there is that trying to make sense of life comprehensively and perfectly is like chasing the wind. It's like vapor that you see and then you don't. So that brings us to um, our passage this morning, Ecclesiastes chapter 3. Uh, we're going to look at verses 9 through 15. Pastor Israel uh, last week walked us through verses 1 through 8. So let me go ahead and read for us verses 9 through 15. What gain has the worker from his toil? I have seen the business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. He has made everything beautiful in its time. Also, he has put eternity into man's heart, yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. I perceive that there is nothing better for them than to be joyful and to do good as long as they live. Also, that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all his toil. This is God's gift to man. I perceive that whatever God, whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it, nor anything taken from it. God has done it so that people might fear him. That which is already has been. That which is to be already has been. And God seeks what has been driven away. Let's pray. Father, open your word to us in such a way that you might transform our minds and our hearts. It could be in this moment that we don't actually feel that happening, but help us to trust that you are always at work. 
And I pray that you would do this in our midst regardless of where we find ourselves right now, believing, disbelieving, or unsure of what we believe when it comes to the things of Jesus. We pray in his name. Amen. I want you to take a moment and look around the room, not at the structure of the building, but at the people around you. And as you do so, you can be certain of something, that the person next to you, the person behind you, the person in front of you, they have a secret. And you actually share that same secret. Now, you might be thinking, this is getting awkward. I have lots of secrets. Which secret are you talking about? Well, I'm talking about that secret which you share with everyone. It's a secret that we can't hide. It's a secret that we can't get away from. And it's a secret that the preacher of Ecclesiastes brings out into the open in these verses. I bet you have a question. What is the secret? Not going to tell you yet. You have to wait a few moments. We'll get there. The preacher begins this section in verse 9 by asking a question. It's a question that he's asked previously already in the book of Ecclesiastes. And the question is this, what gain has the worker from his toil? In other words, we could put it this way, what is the point of all of our work? Now, don't think specifically of work as like a nine-to-five job, like your vocation. It includes that. But when the preacher refers to this word toil throughout the book of Ecclesiastes, he's talking about all of the activity of humans. He's talking about all the work that we do, all of our efforts in life. So he's asking the question, what is the point of it all? What, what, what do we gain from it? Also remember what we've been saying about this word gain throughout the book of Ecclesiastes. The preacher likes to repeat important words. And this word gain has to do with leverage or advantage. It has to do with trying to position ourselves in such a way that we can make sense of it all. That in, a, in essence, that we can be God, that we have the knowledge that he has, that we have um, the, the oversight of the world that he has. And so the preacher asks, what is the point of all of our work? Because does it actually provide us with this leverage, this advantage that he's talking about? Well, we also have to connect this back to the verses that came before that Pastor Israel um, focused on last week. Because verses 1 through 8 set the stage for our passage this morning. And those verses focus our attention on time. The verses are basically a poem. It's a reflection on the way life goes. You've probably heard the famous phrase that comes from this portion of Ecclesiastes, for everything there is a season. The word season means appointed time. There's a time for everything. That's the point of the poem. A time for this and a time for that. The real meaning of the poem is that we don't control time. We don't control time. We can't slow it down. We can't stop it. That's frustrating, isn't it? You, you know those moments in life where you've, you, you've said to yourself, oh, I wish I could slow time down right now and enjoy this particular moment or enjoy this season of life. But no matter what we do, no matter how much we hope, we can't slow time down. We can't stop it. We can't 
speed it up. We can't predict the future. We ask questions. Why does one thing happen and another? The point of the poem, it just does. We ask, why did this event happen when it did, and why not the, the other thing? These are human questions that we ask as people who are, who are bound by time and, and history. We cannot alter these events that the preacher talks about in verses 1 through 8. The story of life will unfold regardless of our activity. All of our work cannot alter God's plan. That's a recap of verses 1 through 8. And that brings us now to verses 9 through 15. But I, I want us to focus in on right now the second part of verse 11. The preacher says something that's really fascinating, at least to me. He says that God has put eternity into our hearts. God has placed eternity into our hearts. Well, this finally leads us to our secret. Remember the secret that I said that each and every one of us shares, we all have in common? And to kind of articulate this secret, I, I, I want to do so from a quote from C.S. Lewis, because I, I think he captures this beautifully and, and powerfully. And he does so by talking about our desire for a far-off country. And so what he's doing here is he's, he's talking about as we find ourselves bound by time, as we, found our, as we find ourselves bound in the story of history, we have this sense that we were made for something bigger, something greater. We, we have this sense that we were created for transcendence. In other words, something that is above the ordinary moments of life. We, we sense this deep down in who we are. And C.S. Lewis is using the metaphor of a desire for a far-off country. We're searching for this far-off country. We don't know where it is, but we long for it because we have this sense of eternity or transcendence. And so he writes this, and speaking of this desire for our far-off country, which we find in ourselves even now, I feel a certain shyness. I am almost committing an indecency, he says. I'm trying to rip open the inconsolable secret in each one of you. The secret which hurts so much that you take your revenge on it by calling it names like nostalgia and romanticism. The secret also which pierces with such sweetness that when in, every, when in very intimate conversation the mention of it becomes imminent, we grow awkward and affect to laugh at ourselves. The secret we cannot hide and cannot tell, though we desire to do both. We cannot tell it because it is a desire for something that has never actually appeared in our experience. We cannot hide it because our experience is constantly suggesting it, and we betray ourselves like lovers at the mention of a name. This is another way of saying that God has placed eternity in our hearts. We, our hearts long, our hearts yearn, our hearts ache for something beyond the present moment. You know, we kind of reflected on this a few weeks ago when we were talking about the idea of pleasure, how we have this tendency in life to pursue a multitude of pleasures in hope that that pleasure might be the key, 
the thing that unlocks all of human experience for you, that invites you into transcendence and eternity, right? It's, it's, it's this thing that we do. We, we can't help it because we know that we were made for a better place. We know that we were made for something bigger. We know that there's more to the present time. We know that there's more to life than just the simple routines and joys and and sorrows. God himself, the preacher says, has placed within us a sense of transcendence, that there's more to life than what we can see. And we carry this around with us every day of our lives. This is the secret that each and every one of us shares. We have an inkling. Sometimes it's only an inkling that there's something more out there. I want to give you a couple ordinary examples to, to illustrate this. The other day, I came across an article in the Philadelphia Inquirer, and the title of the article was, What Philly and What Philly Sports Fans Taught Me About Fandom. Written by a columnist named Stephanie Farr, and she talks about how she moved to Philadelphia in 2007, and um, one of her former uh, co-workers asked her the question before she moved if she liked sports, and she said no. And her friend said, well, if you're moving to Philadelphia, you're not going to have a choice. Um, and since she moved to Philly in 2007, her, her love for sports has grown in appreciation. I don't know that she would consider herself a sold-out sports fan, but she said something really interesting in this article. What I didn't understand about fandom, she writes, that I get now, that I get because of all of you, speaking of the fans, is that it's about being part of something bigger than yourself. She goes on to say, I've chased that feeling my whole life and only found it in a few places. The night sky, the open ocean, and right here in Philadelphia. Some of you are thinking, this woman's crazy. (laughs) I think she's brilliant. But this is an illustration of what we're talking about. Why do Philadelphia sports fans, or sports fans in general, or Stephanie Farr in particular, like, what is the deal here? Why, Why does this thing happen to her heart When it comes to sports, it's because of what the preacher says here in Ecclesiastes 3. God has placed eternity in her heart. She can't help but to sense this. It's her desire, as she writes herself, to be a part of something bigger than herself. And interestingly, she uses the language of chasing after something her whole life. This is what the book of Ecclesiastes is about. The preacher is chasing after the thing, the key that will unlock it all. And the conclusion he keeps arriving at is what? That that's all it is, is a chasing after the wind. Because everything he turns to, it doesn't end up being the key that brings him ultimate satisfaction. One more. Uh, Albert Camus was a philosopher, um, not a, a friend of, of Christianity, but at one point he, w- he was reflecting on 
um, his desires and his activities in life, and particularly um, his desire to live a promiscuous lifestyle. And at one point in reflecting on this, he writes this, because I longed for eternal life, I went to bed with harlots and drank for nights on end. Why? He, he tells us why. And it's somewhat surprising. Because he longed for eternal life. In other words, God placed eternity in his heart. He had no choice. It's what we do as humans because the desire, the sense of eternity is within us. And so we go about our days longing for what transcends the present moment. The other part of this is that we try to make sense of things. So I guess I could say that this, this sense of eternity in our hearts, it points us both to um, our desire for experience and how experience brings us in on this reality that we were made for something bigger than ourselves. But the, but the other um, thing in addition to experience is meaning, that we're always trying to connect the dots. We're always trying to make sense of life. We're always trying to determine meaning. You know, we, we see this all the time in life. When something happens in your life, like a big event, it's impossible, isn't it? It's impossible for you to just go on and pretend like it didn't happen. What do you inevitably do? You try to make sense of it. You wonder about the circumstances. Sometimes you ask questions like, well, wow, like if I had just like been in this place when that happened, could things have gone differently? This is all of our attempts to make meaning. And it's not a bad thing. It's not a bad thing. This is the exploration that the preacher of Ecclesiastes is on. This exploration is actually a good thing. It's a good thing to reflect on life. It's a good thing to try to connect dots and find meaning. But you've already seen this because we keep coming back to the same thing time and time again throughout this series. The bad thing is when we try to connect dots, make, make meaning in such a way as to put ourselves in the place of God and think that we can have comprehensive knowledge how everything works and we can manipulate circumstances and be in control. So we have this sense of eternity, but there's this tension. We can't make sense of eternity. We have this sense of eternity, but we can't make sense of eternity. The second part of verse 11, the preacher says, he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. The word find out here means to figure out, to comprehend by study. You know, as I've said, we have a desire to make sense of life, but we're limited in our ability to do so. And what the preacher says is that both our desire to make sense of life and our inability to do it perfectly are both ordained by God. They're both ordained by God. He has given us a sense of eternity, but he's also made it so that we can't make perfect sense of eternity. It's quite a tension, isn't it? 
It's quite a conflict. It's frustrating. That's actually a word that the preacher uses in this book. Vexation is the word uh, that's translated in um, the translation we're using. This is a frustrating exploration, and it's true to life, and I want you to know that. Um, as you know, you come in this morning, I don't know where each and every one of you is in your spiritual journey, but it could be maybe you've grown up in the church, maybe you are de-churched, maybe you're currently unchurched, but maybe you have this idea that has unfortunately been given to you that as a person of faith, you're supposed to have it all figured out, that you're supposed to have this 100% certainty to know everything about everything. And that is not a scriptural teaching. Scripture actually leads us to a place of humility where we recognize that we are not God. God is God, we are not. And yes, we, it is good for us to try to make sense of life, to connect dots, but in the end, we are not God, despite our desi sometimes desires to be Him. You, you know what it's like to get stuck in a traffic jam? Is that really your reaction when you get stuck in a traffic jam? <laughs> especially when you know you are in the middle. Actually, I wasn't planning on using this particular traffic jam as an example, but uh, my good friend uh, Andrew Warner is here. He's Matt's brother. Um, we went to college together, and one year in college, we drove back from Delaware to Geneva College in Pittsburgh, and I wasn't planning on telling this story, so I won't go into all the details because it'll bore you. Um, but we suddenly hit a stretch of uh, bad weather, and there was ice on the road, and um, everybody started slamming on their brakes, started running into each other. This is all true. Um, but after that kind of calmed down a bit, nobody could go anywhere because there were just cars all over the place, you know, some in the ravine from sliding off the, the road because of the ice. But what was especially frustrating about it is that we, had, we didn't really have a strong sense of where we were in the traffic jam. Like once things cleared, would we be kind of on the front end to um, finally resume our, our um, trip? Or are we in the back end and we're going to be waiting a while? Um, actually, we weren't driving together, were we? Because, yeah, um, I made it back four hours earlier than Andrew, so that gives you an idea of where each of us ended up being in the traffic jam. But it's frustrating when you find yourself in such a situation. You're stuck in the middle. You can't see ahead necessarily, you can't see behind, and you want to know, you want that knowledge. Well, this is kind of what the preacher's talking about here. We find ourselves in life stuck in the middle. We have this sense, eternity within us, that we were made for something bigger than ourselves. As people of faith, we uh, embrace God's word that tells us a beautiful future awaits us when Jesus makes all things new. But in the present, we find ourselves stuck and we can't see behind us, we can't see ahead of us. It's a frustrating reality. And what makes it even more frustrating, as we've established, we can't help but to try to figure it out. 
It's like, it, it almost feels like God's setting us up for failure, doesn't it? Like that's the tension, that the conflict. It, it, it almost feels like that. So what do we do? We sense eternity in our hearts, but we can't fully make sense of eternity. So what do we do? It comes down to this. We live by faith in the present. We live by faith in the present. By faith. The preacher wants us to reflect on what is permanent. Verse 14, I perceive that whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it, nor anything taken from it. God has done it so that people might fear before him. That, is, that which is already has been, that which is to be already has been, and God seeks what has been driven away. The preacher's inviting us to reflect on what is permanent. God has put eternity in our hearts, and this ultimately is meant to help us to remember that we are not God, that we are dependent. And when the preacher says this, it basically serves as a confession of faith. That which is already has been, that which is to be already has been, and God seeks that which was driven away. And before that, in verse 11, going back to verse 11, the preacher says something else that's very fascinating. He says, he makes everything beautiful in its time. Makes everything beautiful in its time. And that word beautiful, <clears throat> it can be a little misleading because what is really meant there is this idea of fitting and rightly ordered. In other words, the preacher is saying, I don't understand it all. I don't understand why one thing happens and another thing doesn't. It's frustrating to me that I'm stuck in the middle, that I can't always see ahead and I can't see behind me. But his confession is this. I trust in the end that the way that God is ordering things is right and fitting. And in its time, we will see how it's beautiful. This is the confession of faith, brothers and sisters, of the book of Ecclesiastes. It's ultimately one of trust. Can we believe, can we trust, when we feel stuck in the middle, that God is weaving everything together for good? Like, like can we entrust that to him? Instead of doing what we are inclined to do, which is to manipulate, maneuver around in life in such a way to ourselves try to make things right, ourselves attempting to rightly order things and make them beautiful according to our own interpretation, instead of doing that, are we able to trust? By faith in the present moment. In the present moment. It's hard to live in the present, isn't it? Even when we're in the present, we're not really in the present. I know that sounds like super philosophical, but here's what I mean. You can sometimes be present with your friends or your family, but you're locked into your cell phone. You, you know, I don't even need to say more. You know what I'm talking about. Yeah, you're physically there, but you're actually not in the present moment. 
It's hard to live in the present moment. And, and bigger picture, thinking about it this way, it's hard to live in the present moment because we're always trying to envision our future, aren't we? We're, we're always trying to figure out, okay, what are my next steps? What's going to happen tomorrow? Um, or for some of us, we dwell on the past. We can't move beyond it. And so we are stuck in the present moment without really even being in the present moment. And the confession of faith of the preacher is to live by faith in the present moment. Where am I getting this from? Well, he's going to repeat something that we saw a couple weeks ago that gets, is not going to be the last time it gets repeated. In verse 12, I perceive that there is nothing better for them than to be joyful and to do good as long as they live. Also that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all his toil. This is God's gift to man. In other words, receive and enjoy God's good gifts to you. Sometimes we dwell on the past in such a way that we overlook God's good gifts in the present. Sometimes we obsessively think about the future in such a way that we overlook God's good gifts to us in the present. God desires for us to live in a moment-by-moment -moment relationship with him by faith. He desires for us to receive his good gifts. It's something that we've said multiple times already in the series. God desires for us to chill out sometimes. To chill out. To receive his good gifts to eat and drink in gratitude, to be able to receive ordinary life as a gift from a gracious God's hands, including your friends, your family, your, your possessions, your job, your relationship with God. All of life is gift. And the way that we kind of came at this a couple weeks ago was we, we talked about how if all we're doing is obsessively thinking, dwelling on the past or obsessively thinking about the future, like we, we lose our sanity, don't we? Because when we're doing that, what we're ultimately trying to do is control. And it gets so frustrating because maybe like there's an area of life where we feel like, okay, I, I think I finally arrived at control here. I have this area of life. Oh no, what? oh gosh, this is out of control. This is how it works. And God wants to invite us out of the obsessive desire to control and into trust and faith in the present moment as we receive his good gifts. Now, the reception of God's good gifts can be tricky because eternity is placed in our hearts and sometimes what we do, like this isn't new, we talked about it a few weeks ago, what we do is we take God's good gifts and we try to even control them. You know what I mean? We try to control them in such a way that we say, okay, you good gift, you deliver me permanent satisfaction. You make everything beautiful in time. You rightly order my life. And we look to this thing, this person, whatever it is to do this, and it can't do it. It can't deliver. And so C.S. Lewis, remember when he was talking about the inconsolable secret, that desire for the far-off country? Well, he goes on and says, 
he's talking about the books and music and how we sometimes sense eternity in those specific things. He says, the books or the music in which we thought the beauty was located will betray us if we trust in them. It was not them. It only came through them. And what came through them was longing. These things, the beauty, the memory of our own past, are good images of what we really desire. But if they are mistaken for the thing itself, they turn into dumb idols, breaking the hearts of their worshipers. For they are not the thing itself. They, they are only the scent of a flower we have not found, the echo of a tune we have not heard, news from a country we have not yet visited. And so as we receive the good gifts from from God, we don't have to control them. Rather, what we can do is allow them to point us to God, the one that we were meant to worship. And sometimes in, in Christianity, we can make it misleading. And what I mean is that we like we, we will sometimes say things like, you know, pursue God alone. God's the only one who can satisfy you. And that is absolutely true. That is fundamental teaching of scripture. But where it can be misleading is we think to ourselves, we, we, it's almost like we resent the good gifts in our lives. That's not how it's meant to be. God gives us good things. God wants us to enjoy life so that we would worship him so that we would be grateful, so that we would be thankful. And in response, we worship him with the whole of our lives, including even the way we use these gifts to bring us closer to him and to bless others with our gifts. As um, one commentator says, reflecting on this passage, sooner or later, whether due to age, sickness, or circumstance, there will be no other place to go. No other work to try, no other wife to leave, and no other menu from which we can order. At some point, we all have to come to terms with the spiritual truth that true joy is found in God, and God is found right where his gifts are. Brothers and sisters, receive the good gifts of God that are right before you. Don't turn them into dumb idols. Express your gratitude to God and worship him as the giver of all good gifts. And what's beautiful here is that, you know, as we find ourselves stuck in the middle and we embrace the truth of the first eight verses of Ecclesiastes in that poem, that the story of life will unfold despite our activity, here's a remarkable truth of Scripture that God is not bound by time like we are. But God submitted himself to time. He entered into time. The time he created, the world that he created, he entered into it with a physical existence in order to pave the way for us in teaching us how to live in relationship to God moment by moment by faith, receiving God's good gifts and using them to bless others. But even more importantly, to ultimately offer up his life for us. Jesus experienced the seasons. You know, all the seasons under the sun, he experienced them. He absorbed them. He knows the times, we could say. 
He knows what it's like to feel the variety of things. He entered into time and space. And because he did these things for us, as we respond to him by faith, and we, we look to Jesus and say, you are the one who leads me to God. You are the one who leads me into fullness of life. As we do that, we ultimately escape the biggest inevitability of life, as we talked about a couple weeks ago, which is death. And so, in Jesus, we can be secure. We can be secure. We can chill out and trust. And, and last thing I'll point out, and I'll wrap up, the very last part of verse 14, God seeks what has been driven away. God seeks what has been driven away. That is an amazing, amazing reality for us to hold on to. You know how, like, we feel stuck in the middle? The, the past is the past, the future we can't see. What this verse is ultimately saying is that God will connect the two. And God seeks what has been driven away. In other words, judgment is real. In other words, God will one day make all things right. Even the hard things of your, of your past, even all of those things that cause you grief in your life, God will seek what has been driven away. He will redeem. He will replace uh, brokenness with beauty. And this has all been secured for us because of the work of Jesus. And so, do you believe that? Are you able to receive that great gift so that you might moment by moment walk in faith with God? Let's pray. Father, we are so grateful that at the last judgment, you will call back the past. You will seek it out and connect it with the future and nothing will be lost. What this means is that we don't have to strive for the ultimate control that we aspire to in life. We can let you be God. We can trust. And so I pray that you would grant us that trust and that you would grant us the blessing of being able to receive your good gifts and being able to point others to you, the one who is the giver. We pray these things in your name, Jesus. Amen. Uh, if you have children who were in City Church Kids, you can go.